A rich man came to Christ, asked him what must he do to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He could not make Christ's standard. The apostles were, well, they weren't apostles yet. The disciples were terrified and forgetting about the rich man, they asked the question, who then can be saved? And Christ looked at them and delivered the hard word. With man, this is impossible. It cannot be done. And then he delivered the gracious word that with God, all things are possible. And so friends, I stand before you today as we come not to the very end, but close to the end of the book of Amos and tell you that I am ill-equipped to be able to speak the word of God to you today and you are ill-equipped to be able to receive it. I can't do it and neither can you. But by grace, we stand. It's funny, me and Freeman were talking this morning and we have seen in our very own midst grace upon grace very specifically over the last couple of months with Susie, with Mama Francis being able to come home. Mike has gone from not being able to speak to being able to transfer to a wheelchair out of his bed on his own, he walked 37 steps the other day. Dustin Clopton's sister and brother-in-law and their children were spared. By the way, if anybody's got a mattress, we need one. Um, my heart goes out for Crystal Elliott this morning. Chris, her father, who has been battling um, prostate cancer for the last year, had some pretty significant surgery about a year ago. Um, they're not here this morning because he informed them that he is just ate up. And so I find myself facing the reality that We have seen so much blessing and so much grace, and yet there is a weight. There is a weight that I can't quite put my finger on that hangs over our head. A weight that... If I may speak on his behalf, Jamie Freeman is certain is going to be the balloon that pops full of the glory of God. 
Such is the nature of an absolutely holy and infinite Lord. This morning, once again, in Amos chapter 9, in verses 13 through 15, restore, rebuild, and be planted. In Amos chapter 1, the shepherd from Tekoa in chapter 1 verse 2 says that the Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice from Jerusalem and the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. As we've looked for the last several months, a very partial God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes forth out of love stronger than any that ever comes out of hate. And the discipline of the Lord is not simply a duality. It's not simply the carrot or the stick, but as we saw last week is specifically the carrot, the stick, or for those who are obstinate, the sword. And yet, as violent and I, and I think we have to agree that the book of Amos is about as violent as it gets. As violent as the judgment of God is, its outcome is not what men would expect. But instead, it is to restore, to rebuild and to be planted. And so after all of the difficulties of Amos chapter 1 through 9 and a half, in verses 13 through 15, the Lord tells the prophet this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them says the Lord your God. Restore, rebuild, and be planted. The reality is, like it or not, that the judgment that was coming upon Israel was rightly deserved. These are a people that having known the Lord their God, having seen Him, having been baptized into the cloud that was Jesus Christ according to the book of Hebrews. Having seen the fire descend upon Sinai. Having heard the voice of Him who spoke when they said, Moses, you go talk to Him. Don't let Him speak to us again or we will die. having seen all of this. They considered their own fortunes and their own power, and they lifted up two golden calves 
in northern Israel and said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. And the Lord said, Because you did this, you will die. They deserve what is coming to them. Their judgment is just. History will record the atrocity of the Assyrian Empire as being one of the most brutal, horrific things that has ever walked across the face of the earth. And the Lord said, you're getting exactly what's coming to you. In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 30 and verses 1 through 7, he speaks of it in this manner. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Now in order for your fortunes to be restored, they must first have to be destroyed. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. And when you read the book of Amos, it is eight chapters of destruction, death, destruction, death, destruction, death, destruction, death, death, and death. I mean, let us not forget what he said. I have cast my eye on you for evil and not for good. And yet, yet, here at the end, restore, rebuild, replant. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Brothers and sisters, the problem with the church often today in their theology is not the fact that they preach peace. It's they preach peace without judgment first. That's not what Jeremiah and Amos were preaching. We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Now we're going to do specific application in sometime in the next two weeks. But buddy, this, if there's not specific application to where, there is nothing in Amos that Israel did that America is not guilty of doing. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? According to your transportation secretary, they can. Why then, if this is the case? I mean, the logic just screams from the page. <laughs> Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Why do you have politicians that are on 
Facebook and Twitter declaring that they're not going to be able to work because they're on maternity leave and they're men. Alas. Alas. That day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. It's a time of distress because Paul tells us in the book of Romans that such activity is the direct result of the willful abandonment of God. It is a time of distress for Jacob. And if I may digress for just a moment, lest you hear me wrong, I do not despise our transportation secretary. I do despise what he's doing. There was a time in my life when I would have despised him. I pray that the Lord would grant him repentance. Because that's the only hope he has. And being in the position he is in is a testimony about the position of the country that we are in, which you and I are all involved in. And individually, when it came to me and you, the Lord granting me repentance was the only hope I had. And so I pray, can you imagine what that testimony would look like? Oh man, the talking heads at MSNBC would explode. Can you imagine what that testimony would look like? The reality is, the reason they need to rebuild is because the Lord brought just destruction upon them. Alas, the day is so great, there is none like it. A time of distress for Jacob. Yet, he shall be saved out of it. Yet, as foul as it is to set up two golden calves in Dan and Bathsheba and say, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. Even in the midst of this, he shall be saved out of it. In the first part of the 20th century, Julia Johnson penned these words, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you shall be today. Or as the Lord continued to the prophet Jeremiah, that it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break this yoke from off of your neck. 
And I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, who I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away. Your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all of the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. And man, it is just. And look, I don't like it. I get why people don't want to preach it because you know what? I've got just measure coming to me. It's easier to deny. But the reality is, is it's just. You go, man, how, how do you deal with that? Here's how you deal with it. Is verse 11. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I'm with you to save you. I will discipline you in just measure and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. Notice that the Lord, being one who is immutable and does not lie or change his mind, has a tendency to repeat himself a lot. He's saying the same thing to Jeremiah as Jesus would say to the disciples. With man, this is impossible. Can't be done. Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy the punishment of a merciless foe. Now, I don't know about you, Jim, that scares me to death. When God himself looks down and says, I will be to you a merciless foe. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Your guilt is great because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. Now, that right there should sound to you like the screeching of brakes and the grinding of gears. In one breath, 
The Lord is going on and on and on about how they deserve everything they're getting. That he has treated them as an enemy. That he has turned his eye upon them for evil and not for good. And then the next breath out of his mouth is this. Is everyone that I used as the means to bring this upon you, I am going to utterly destroy All who devour you shall be devoured. You go, man, how does that make any sense? Let me tell you how it makes sense. Because God cares way about, way more about his promise to you than he cares specifically about you. The one thing he is going to uphold is himself. And when he's told Abraham, by golly, I'm going to do this, then he meant he was going to do it. And you go, man, I don't know if I like that or not. Friend, you better like it. That's the way salvation comes. Because if it was dependent upon Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of the 12 sons of Israel or any of the apostles, Peter himself included, is the perfect example. You give that guy a chance, what he'll do is spit on the ground, curse and say, I don't even know him. If it was up to me and you, it would fail. It would fail. Praise God he loves himself. And if he says it, he's going to do it in spite of you and in spite of me. And you say, well, but, but pastor, we, we see all the way the, the Lord is working. And hey, let's, let's look at some real examples. Everybody talks about, you know, practical application. Let's have practical application. Let's talk about some, not, not theoretical application, but actual practical application. Let's consider Susie for a minute. Man, that woman's as sick as she can be, and she's given nothing but excellent testimony from front to back. You know why? Because of him. That's why. Mama Francis... It kills her every day that she can no longer labor the way that she used to in the house of the Lord. And as hard as it is on her, you know what she does? She gets up and she does her little stuff. And she does everything that she is physically able to do to be able to get here. Because what I tell her is that we have young women that need your testimony more than they need your labor. You know how she does that? It's not because of her. It's because of him. He says, I chose you knowing what you would do. The judgment is just, and in the cross, the salvation is justified. And 
and a very, very partial God. Shows no partiality. Because he paid the debt himself. Verse 17. I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. For they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tent of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be and out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before you and I will punish all who oppress them. God is partial. He's partial to himself. He's not partial amongst the creation. At least, not in a way whose foundation is not found in him. It is the offspring of Abraham that he helps. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst, and I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. In that day they will rebuild. And they will rebuild because... Just judgment came and brought them low. And yet the grace of God is with them. And that grace being functional. Functional grace. There are those that if you preach the grace of God would think you to be a fatalist. Been accused of that this week. Grace is not fatalistic. Grace functions to produce that which it ordains. And so, the people of God who have been shown grace must then operate in grace. Which is exactly what they will do because the grace of God does not fall on deaf ears. 
it accomplishes that for which it was sent. And so when the Lord shows grace to a people, they by default become a gracious people. And if they don't, then indeed they are confused about what they have been shown. I will restore, in Amos chapter 9 verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. This is God acting. This is an active verb. Here he is. He's restoring the fortunes of his people. And out of the activity of God, then comes the activity of the new creation. So it doesn't start with men. That is heresy. It's not just heresy. It's blasphemy. If that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. This isn't about you. It doesn't start with men. It starts with the grace of God. But that grace produces something in men. Because God isn't making, as we've often said, trinkets to set on a shelf. The miracle He's doing in salvation is not moving you from one list to another. The miracle He's doing is creating a living, sentient, thinking, feeling, desiring being. He speaks these out of nothing. Mount Zion, He spoke us out of nothing. He said, let them live. And I'll pay the debt. Let them live. Let them think. Let them feel. Let them desire. Let them make choices. Let them be more than the rocks and the fish and my dog. Let them be the sons and daughters of God. Let them want. And out of that want, decide. I will restore the fortunes of my people. And what happens next? They will do. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. If you want to be a doer, do not think that the sovereignty of God in salvation undermines your doing. The sovereignty of God in salvation empowers your doing for which you could not do otherwise. Could not do. He makes life. This is the new creation. It is a glorious thing to behold. So glorious that I think it technically, and please hear me, and I know this makes me a geek, it technically qualifies as being awful. Now we use that word in a very negative context in, in our day-to-day language, but that's not what it actually means. It means it is worthy of inspiring awe. We should go, whoa. 
This is the things that are spoken of when it says that all the sons of God sang for joy. They will rebuild. And this is true of his people in general. It is specifically true of the nation of Israel as the testimony of that new creation. Where in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4, it says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. And so here you have the Lord coming in and saying, Okay, I am going to do something. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people. And when I restore that, because they are the miracle that I'm doing, then it's going to cause them to act. And they're going to rebuild, and they're going to plant, and they're going to reap. And so in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, if you're going to ask yourself, and I think we should, what does this look like? How does this actually work? You know, do you have a committee that is in charge of restoring the ancient devastations of many generations? You know, do we do this with a trust fund? Do we, you know, do we have a giving campaign? Like, like, like what do we do here? I fear the church has lost way too much of its supernatural reality. Yeah. I'll talk about Baptists because I am one. We're so worried somebody's going to think we're a flaky charismatic that we can't figure out the only way that you can do anything that he asks you to do is by the empowerment of his spirit. And otherwise, you're not going to get there. They're going to rebuild it. How? Okay, here's how. And I know, I know we're, you know, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of these guys are interlocked. What they were saying was not lost on the authors of the New Testament. And so real quick, keeping your finger in Isaiah 61, let's flip over to Luke chapter 4. written by a Gentile for Gentiles. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah chapter 61. And the quote's about himself. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up, and as was as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This just happens to be in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, this is a first century equivalent of a mic drop. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The synagogue in Nazareth no longer stands, but the one in Capernaum is still there. It's not much bigger than this room. They were locked in. And he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, guys, you know me. My favorite Bible verse changes about six times a day. But, dude, can you imagine being there for that? When he peels open a scroll of Isaiah that's literally this big around and says, That's me. And because you're going to be restored, it's time to rebuild. The fullness of what he spoke of is in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. We're going to read all the way through to verse 5 of, of 62, because this is what Christ was speaking of. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Let me tell you something. It makes me angry that we do not hear the judgment of God being preached from the pulpits today because you cannot tell the people of good news about salvation if they don't know what they're being saved from. You are undermining the goodness of God. You are selling Him short. It is despicable. Look at the language that He uses. The day of vengeance of our God. To do what? To comfort those that mourn. 
You go, man, that doesn't make sense. No, according to human standards, it does not make sense. Friend, there's all sorts of stuff about God that doesn't make sense according to human standard. He's got stuff that's not like your stuff. It's not like my stuff. The fear of the Lord is not like any other fear. It doesn't repel. It draws His people near. God has a vengeance that is not fearful to His people but brings comfort to them. You thought He was altogether like you. He is nothing like me. And He is nothing like you. He is infinitely better. They may be called the oaks of righteousness. Hope oh, no, I missed some of it. I don't want to miss any of it. Let's back up. Because the scripture is way better than the commentary. Huh? <laughs> Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that they may be glorified and they shall build up the ancient ruins. Why? Because when God makes you an oak of righteousness, then you go out and do oaky righteousness things. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but they shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. And instead of dishonor, there shall, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. I've come that you may have joy and that your joy may be complete. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the offspring the Lord has blessed. Because Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name. The mouth of the Lord will give it to you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem on the hand of your God. Man, what an incredible... Okay, just for a moment. Can you believe that the Lord is going to take the children of Adam who He formed out of the dust of the ground and accomplish them and accomplish in them something that is so magnificent that they are befitting to adorn His hand like a jewel... A holy God. And you can go back and you can read the first chapter of Ezekiel and get a load of that deal. And he says, when I'm done with you, the thing that I am doing, when I restore you so that you may rebuild, so that you may be planted, this thing that I have done, that I have foretold from of old in Christ, to set the captives free, when I'm done with you, you will be fitting to set on my hand like a jewel. Crazy. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Notice that in your English translation that it has a capital F because it's a proper noun. This is not an adjective. This is a title You were forsaken. That was your name. Let me tell you something, friend. If you don't know Christ today, you are the forsaken. Let's just get it out of the way right now. You are the condemned. You are the damned. And He's just to call you that. But if you can hear this word today... That's not what you have to remain. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, once again, notice the capitals, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and, in, and your land shall be married, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That is what it means when God restores and out of that restoration you rebuild when God himself plants you. 
notice back in Amos in chapter 9, verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. So here you have God acting, and then out of the act of that new creation, you have his people acting. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And this will result in the ordained end. God does, causes creatures to do, causes what God wanted to be established. I will plant them in their land. Here you have the Lord speaking life out of death, and then you've got life doing what life does, which is lots of activity and lots of building and renewing and all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, the reality that they're established, that they're planted, is going to come all back to the feet of God. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The prophet Jeremiah, as we've often noted, moving through Amos was a contemporary of his. And speaking a little bit longer on this same subject, in Jeremiah chapter 24, in verse 1 through 7, he speaks not to the northern kingdom of Israel, but to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says this, that after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here, and brought them to Babylon. The Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two basket of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. And then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. Now, like I said, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to do practical application. We're going to come back here when we do, but I want you to get this in your head right now. Be thinking about it. Be praying about it. Get your mind wrapped around it. When it came to the destruction of Israel that was the just punishment for their sin, it was those that went into exile that the Lord was being gracious to. You go, man, that doesn't sound very gracious. Well, check out the historical record on what the other option was. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will set my eyes on them for good. Now, flip back over to Amos. Chapter 9, verses 2 through 4. Quoting from Psalm 39 plus a little extra, 139 plus a little extra. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And yet here, here, the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I'll regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans, and I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land, and I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Because when God says, I'm going to reestablish you, that's what he does. He has set his eye upon the exiles that he sent into exile. And it was good. It was good. And so I look around today. I consider the things that are before us. You know, the crazy thing is, is when I started teaching Mama Frances a Sunday school class, she was less than a decade older than Mark. I've known Mike and Carla my whole life. Guy can barely make a transfer into a wheelchair. You look at these things and you go, man, they're heavy and they're big. Consider the situation with Chris Lovelady, Crystal's dad. They're heavy and they're big. You know what they are? They are. Let's not mince any words about it. Let me tell you something. God has set His eye on you for good and not for evil. And the reason we know that is because of what Christ said sitting in that synagogue in Nazareth and said, Buddy, I'm it. This has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And so, 
if we have the word of the Lord and we have the spirit of Christ in us, then even when you find yourself in exile, that is the grace of God to you and not the wrath of God. If Brian Williams finds himself in exile, that's because there's something in exile that I need to learn. You go, man, it's hard. Okay. If I can be me for just a moment, I understand it's hard. Okay? I get it. But you know what? You need to understand it's hard too and quit rehashing that one. Okay, we've heard it. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard, all right. It's hard going to Babylon when they lay the catfish out on the table and you tell them you're not going to eat and there's a better chance they're going to throw you into a fiery furnace than let you have lentils. It's hard. What part of take up your cross was not going to be hard? Now look, I want you to hear me because I don't want to be a jerk. I got to look myself in the mirror and tell me that every now and then. And you know what I say? Get over it. If the Lord required it of his son, would he not require it of his adopted children? Man, it's it's hard. Okay. Settled. Yes, done. We do hard things. Not because we're capable. But because He restores the fortunes of His people. And having restored those fortunes, out of that new creation, they build so that they are planted. Marvelous grace of our loving God. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder, on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace that is greater than all our sin, sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold. It points to the refuge, the mighty cross, for dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What would we do to wash it away? But look, look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, 
matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see His face. And man, if you are, He's already got you. Will you this moment His grace receive? That was written in 1910. Nearly 2,000 years before. Paul said the same thing like this. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which is exactly where we stand today. Hard and all. So we got some stuff on our plate. And I think it would be, I think we need to to pray specifically um, for some of these things. And so normally, I pray in closing, but I'm not going to do that um, this morning. I'm going to ask Damon, if you would, um, pray for Susie. And um, Patrick, if you would, to pray for Mike. Um, David, if you would, to pray um, for Dustin's sister and her family with their loss. And Mark's going to pray for Chris and then... The choir master is going to come and and lead us in some praise, and then he'll pray to dismiss us.